Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Tony Birch. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from taboo authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land and treaty has never been made in Australia. Tony Birch is an author, an activist, an historian and an essayist. In 2017, he received the Patrick White Literary Award and he's a recipient of numerous other awards and shortlistings. We are still talking about 2019's The White Girl, and he's got two new books out. We're going to be talking about them today. One is a collection of poetry. It's entitled Whisper Songs, and there is also a short story collection called Dark as Last Night. The works in Whisper Songs and Dark as Last Night explore themes both personal and universal. Tony writes around the death of his brother, moving into memory to understand loss and carrying on. The poetry of Whisper Songs explore language, the ways we use it to express and hide our inner world, and Tony explores through archival excerpts and reworkings how language is harnessed as a weapon against Indigenous people to strip them of their humanity and place them within a society that has stolen so much from them. These collections are diverse, but you don't have to listen or take my word for it. Let's jump into this conversation. Join me as we discover Tony Birch's Whisper Songs and Dark as Last Night. Hello, Tony. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you fine. What, can you hear me? I can. Thank you so much. And thank you thank you for persevering um, with me this morning. It's a pleasure to be... Um, no, that's fine. That's have a, fine. Have a chance to chat. Um, sorry, I, I've had just such an interesting time and I haven't... I have this sort of... It's almost a cliche of, of when I speak to someone about a, a poetry collection or a short story collection that... You have this wonderful opportunity, but it's very difficult because every work could or invite sort of a whole conversation, and we're trying to have a conversation about a collection. And um, I, I, I'm very excited about this. I'm excited that you, uh, you've, you've chosen a poem that we might speak about. But and I have, I have included a few works that I, I've wanted to ask you something specific about. But um, yeah, sure. I'd probably also yeah. suggest, yeah, like I, uh, please guide the conversation as well. Um, if I haven't gotten no, we'll to anything. Probably. All right. Let's jump in then so we get to some good some good stuff. You are tuned in to 2SER 107.3. You're on Final Draft. My name is Andrew Popel, and it is my great pleasure to introduce Tony Birch. He is an author, an activist, an historian, an essayist. In 2017, he received the Patrick White Literary Award and is the recipient of numerous other awards and short listings. We're still talking about 2019's The White Girl, but he's got two new books out this year, a collection of poetry entitled Whisper Songs and a short story collection, Dark as Last Night. Tony, welcome to Final Draft. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm excited about this conversation. I, Your writing feels inviting to me i i checked out your website ostensibly i was writing an introduction bio for our interview and i really quickly got pulled into the orbit of your blog uh before i remembered that there are these two collections that i i really needed to be reading for our conversation and when i say it feels inviting i'm not trying to say that your reading is easy or necessarily light 
quite a few stories in Darker's Last Night had me quietly crying to myself over your subject matter or or a moment shared between characters. I think I I mean inviting in the sense that I wanted to experience to live in this world that you create, a world where things are as shit as we know that they are and that they can be, but that there is this language where we are able to talk or start to talk about the things that are going on. Now, you work prolifically across forms. That's evidenced in the fact we're talking about two separate collections, a poetry collection, a short story collection. I'm sure many readers have a favourite, but could you comment on what different forms mean to you? What headspaces they take in, you into? What what voices they give you? Yeah, well, usually for anything that I write, um, it's obviously um, energised by an idea. So... I'll have an idea which it might be based on an observation. It could be based on something that's really bugging me or something that I'm interested in politically. It could be based on my experience of being a daily runner and walker. So a lot of my observations and thoughts are uh, centred around those you know, great clarity spaces that you create when you go for a long run or a walk. And essentially the genre or the style that I work in will reveal itself. So I don't look at something and think, oh, that has to be a poem or that has to be a short story, that has to be an essay. It tends to be that the idea floats, forms and crystallises for me and then I will think of a means of communication to deliver it in. I think in regard to the poetry, it's quite um, obvious to me that what I enjoy about poetry is I enjoy the what I would call the, the more the simple and direct poem that may and hopefully have sort of endless layers of meaning or certainly be multi-layered. And I think sometimes to create spareness through poetry is really important to give the idea space and to give the reader the opportunity to, to engage with those spaces. I think in regard to the fiction, it's much more about I'll see something or I'll reflect on an idea, an observation, and I might write that a paragraph down in a notebook so that I don't forget it and then I don't do anything consciously about it I really let the idea come back and tap me on the shoulder and then I tend to feel there's something more here and then I tend to feel well there's probably a short story here in regard to my non-fiction writing that is probably much more clear before any writing is done of how I need to approach it so that say in regard to issues like you know a contest over colonial history, while I have addressed those issues obliquely through fiction and poetry, being a ex-academic, sometimes I feel, I feel that the, the essay form is, is more appropriate. But so to sum up, I suppose the best way is that it's it just, you have an idea or you have something to say, and then it's about contemplating which, which is the best way to say it. In other words, how best to communicate that idea. Mm. I'm going off, off script already, but I just latched onto what you said about writing um, and walking and running, because I also like I'm I'm going for multiple walks a day, but we're we're so limited at the moment. I know from your interviews that you um, you live not far from where you grew up, and we're all sort of stuck in a five kilometer radius now. How do you find sort of retreading the streets over and over again every day? What are you discovering anew? That's a really great question because I live in Fitzroy, which is a suburb that I initially grew up in, and most of my life has been spent in the inner city and my mum my still lives 
in the same house she's lived in for 40 years just down the road from me. So I know the streets of you know, Fitzroy, Carlton and, and Collingwood pretty much back to the front. But what I find is that rather than repetition um, through walking and running along the river, for instance, it's, it's a form of reiteration so that there are, there are core ideas that have governed my writing and influenced my writing since I first started to publish. And I think what happens to me is that there are endless ways to address those core issues. And it's, it, yeah, it's like digging. You just keep digging. <laughs> There's no bottom. And it's often the case where I feel, I feel sometimes, by the way, that I have dealt with an idea or I'm spent. And I don't go back to the same ideas because I'm lazy or I think, oh, well, this works, I'll just go through it again. It's much more the case that the ideas are always developing and always evolving into to something something new. And I think in the collection Dark as Last Night, I think it's I've gone back closer to my first book than anything since so that there are several stories in Dark as Last Night, a story like The Bicycle Thieves, which is very reminiscent in style and content of my first book, Shadowboxing, which is 15 or 16 years ago now. But I didn't go back because that that was familiar territory. I actually went back because I wanted to explore something new about a relationship between siblings, between two brothers, so that I think, yeah, issues of family, issues of marginalised people, issues of you know, Aboriginal resistance, all of these issues have always been part of my writing and I don't think I've come to terms with them yet. In other words, I think my writing is a means of trying to understand the world and that's the world I inhabit. Um, I inhabit a five-kilometre radius. I I felt that and I've also heard you talk in interviews that there is so much of your family and particularly your brother in these collections. I know this is something you do get asked frequently, but I also I can feel that we're at a time when broadly our ability to process, to articulate grief seems sorely stretched. Can I ask you how, how did you work with your pain and, and try to create something meaningful? Well, I suppose, that, like, I, I think a lot of writers or a lot of people who want to express something about grief, my initial reaction was not only hesitancy, I, I felt very uncomfortable about writing anything about my younger brother. Not because I didn't feel it painful personally, I actually felt that it was helpful to me, but I was writing, I suppose, for the first time in my life, much more what I thought would be private um, thoughts. I then realised that the writing really not helped me come out of my grief, but helped me retain a closeness to my brother and and remember great aspects of our childhood, our, our, our growing up period of our life. And then... I did write one poem about him, which um, I put in the collection, which was about finding my brother outside Kyoto and um, in Japan. I showed that poem to everyone in my family. Uh, I did tell my mum then that I was writing a lot about Wayne and I did write an essay called Walking and Being, which talked about the relationship between walking and, and grief in some ways. And then, of course, a couple of the stories that became part of the collection were fictional tellings of aspects of our life, although not not autobiographical in a verbatim sense. And basically what I did is I, I felt, one, that the, the the writing was helpful. I thought the writing was good. So I did speak to people in the family to, to get a sense of how they felt. And I, th- I think the, the reaction from my mother was probably the most um, helpful in the sense that my younger brother had suffered a lot of psychiatric um, illness in the last, you know, 35 years of his life, which had a 
obviously the impact on his mental state, but also his physical state. And my writings about my brother mostly were, were about childhood or a lot about childhood. And my mum said that there are a lot of people who didn't remember or know my brother from his childhood. And he was incredibly vivacious, um, happy child. So that she was quite content. And as I was, and I, I have to say that, um, I found that the the articulation of love for my brother through the poems and the stories that are about him or relative to him, I, I feel that, you know, I'm happy with the writing and I, I think the people who have read that material really respond in the way that I would hope, that not only is, it, is, there, is there grief, but there is love between these two brothers and that I hope that brings respect and value to my brother's life, who was, you know, pretty much an isolated, very private person for all of his adult lives. So it's something that I probably felt that I wouldn't have done, but having done it, it's something I feel very, I actually do feel, I feel comfortable with it. I feel like there can be uh, a tension uh, in our inner worlds between, I guess our emotional world, the world where we are, we are feeling and then the way the world where we express things. And, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it can be, it can almost feel like there is no natural, state or forgive the forgive the term no natural communication between feeling and words mm-hmm. you work with words it's you know it's self-evident to me on the page that you are someone who who thinks about words who who understands how words work but does that naturally na- necessarily have a natural flow from emotion to words or was this a process did you have to work to to move from one to the other no i, I think again it no, it's a, again, it's a really good question. I think that the best way to respond, I suppose, would be to say that there was a, there's an openness between myself, my emotional state, and what you might call my creative practice. So that, you know, I, I, I went through university as an adult, and one of the things you find in the Western university system is, it, is emotion is really repressed. Emotion is really frowned upon. And by the way, both when I was an undergraduate, particularly in a theoretical way and even in an interpersonal way, so that, yeah, I don't want to get sort of too down on it, but I worked in universities for about 20 years. And prior to that, yeah, I'd grown up. I'd been a telegram boy. I'd worked in an abattoir. I was a a firefighter. Um, I found the university environment socially very stifling emotionally so that people would often not say how, would not speak about how they felt. And that interestingly, in relationship, I taught history for many years. I think I was very surprised that people mis, misunderstood the relationship. That I, often, by the way, I think this is helpful. When I was teaching students, and if another student's workshop material was was had emotion in it in a really quality way, the students who were critical of the work would often say, I think it's sentimental, as in a negative but when I'd say, well, what what do you mean by sentimental? Can you just you know, can you show me that in the text? They actually never could. They actually never could. And I think, to be honest, having to deal with an emotional narrative was really difficult for them. So their only way to respond was to not dismiss it, but put up a shield and tell it's too sentimental. Same as the way, by the way, in the West, people talk about nostalgia was always a dirty word when I was in university. But in non-Western cultures. If you, if you look at the, the word and you look at the meaning of the word, and a friend of mine, Arnold Zabel, who's a great writer, has done this, is that 
nostalgia as a yearning for something can be really poignant because it can be a yearning for a loss that is not shallow, that is not sentimental, that is deeply felt. So I think in my work I've always been really open to emotional expression and as a, yeah, for want of a better word, a practitioner, I certainly do and would say to students that if you write emotion, you know, you don't, it's important not to be sentimental. They're not the same thing. And to find a space where the reader can engage and un- understand the depth of feeling. So in the um, story Afterlife, which is the second story in Darker's Last Night, there's that moment when the younger sister, Angie, demands of her older brother how he found his brother who had passed away. So in other words, the older brother has arrived at his brother's government flat and found his brother dead in the bedroom. We know that that has occurred off camera. And then Angie demands of her brother to show her what position her brother's body was in. And then there's that moment where she lays on the floor in the same sort of fetal position and she just sort of scratches at the carpet. Now, that to me, that is deeply poignant and emotional, but you you wouldn't follow it up with saying, and Angie felt extremely sad doing that. So in other words... I want the reader to understand this This has real emotional depth to it and you don't need to explain that to the reader or you don't need to sort of, you, know, you don't need to nail it down. I, I always believe that my reader is generous or that I write for a reader that, who is generous. And when I say intelligent, I don't mean that in any sort of highbrow way. A reader who is intelligent, who understands what a writer is trying to do. And in a way, I like to say I barrack for writers when I'm a reader. I don't buy a book and think, I hope it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, I, when I buy a book, I want it to be good. Mm. And when I'm working with a writer, I, I try to understand what they're doing. And even if I'm in a part of a novel where I feel the novel is not working, I, 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 I sort of, I'm encouraging myself as a reader to understand what the writer's trying to do and hope that the writer comes through. So uh, that's really important to me. I love that. And thank you so much for sharing that. I think you've articulated something that's always on my mind. If I'm reading something and it's not landing with me, I, I I try to be open enough to say, like this this has landed with someone else. Maybe it's not the book that's in the wrong place. Maybe I'm not in the right place. Um, th- yeah. Thank you. I, I think the expression you just used there, you're 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 barracking for the writer. You know, you you want to be a generous reader. I like I like that. I, I think if I'll, I'll borrow that, if I may. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and I mean, it's really important. I think it's one of the problems with um, with um, critics in Australia. And I, by the way, overwhelmingly, I get I get very generous reviews for my books, and I've only had a couple of couple of dull ones over the years. But I, when I read a review of a book, I'm not looking for the critic to be a you know a smart ass and 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 sort of play with the book or to be derogatory towards the the writer. I'm looking for a critic who's, who's trying to understand the book. And if, if it doesn't work, that's fine. I think it's important for a critic to point that out. But I like books where, oh, sorry, I like reviews where critics, even if they feel a book didn't deliver, they will engage with, with, with the idea and then allude, allude to why they think the idea hasn't quite come up. And I think that's it's important to do that. Before we go any deeper into either of the collections, can we give our listeners a sense of, of your writing, would you? Can I invite you to share something from one of the collections, please? Yeah, sure. So what I'll do is I'm going to read the first poem in the collection Whisper Songs called "Little Man," which is obviously a poem about my younger brother, and it's a poem that I wrote after he had died, and it is a poem based on my walking around the 
I suppose the locations of where we grew up, which are, again are very close to where I live. Little man, search for you at night beyond the creaking gate, old haunts, streets, corners, back lanes dressed in rain, big sky darkness. Spoke soft words calling your name, echoes to glimpse light, fell with a dying moon, our whispered songs for you. Face hidden, you refused us, mute, silent. Brother, we marked you lost, our hidden faces, morning, morning. Until you appeared, brown pools, honey locks, in one hand a guitar, in the other a book, words of gold, music ever true. A song of promise, you sang sweet, I will be with you. Thanks so much. Um, thank you for reading that, Tony. Listening to you read there, I, I'm, I'm reflecting on my reading. I um, so p- partly because of the lockdown, I've been reading um, not a not a physical copy of your work. I've been reading a digital copy, um, which I never usually like. It's great for it's great for annotating. It's great to, to have it on the screen and be able to type. But there is something about reading, and particularly with poetry, reading out loud, and I think particularly for any work, having that embodied feel in your hands. Um, do you have do you have an embodied sense of your poetry? Do you do you prefer your poetry read aloud? How do you engage, or how do you engage generally with that way with that work? Well, I'm a bit of an oddity in the sense that I don't do a lot of poetry. This is my second collection, um, and I have done readings of this book publicly. I've been involved in Poetry Month, which is currently a project that um, Red Room Poetry in Sydney are, are hosting, and. To be honest, I find it a little, I have to say generally I don't enjoy reading my poetry to audiences in a room because I don't, I mean, I'm not down on performance poets or spoken word, but I feel I can't do it naturally or I, I don't know how to do it. And I watch other poets read and I think, God, oh, they're, they're really great at delivering their work, but I, I, I don't often feel that I know how to, to act or, or to perform. Having said that, it's interesting that this is probably the third time that I've been asked to read a poem to record for, you know, a, a, well, yeah, all for radio. And I, I feel much more relaxed in the sense that um, I don't have an audience in front of me and my, my object is just to make sure that I, I give value to the word. So so I, I, I don't mind it. I also, to be honest, which apparently someone told me is very old-fashioned, I like to hear poetry read. I do like to hear poetry read. But my real joy, my real comfort is to read poetry very quietly and very in a sense of a place of solitude. So I go back to poets that I really enjoy or go back to particular poems that I really enjoy. And I love to savour a reading where, I, where I've been able to sort of slow the whole process down because I think that the issue for me with poetry, it allows us to, to slow down. I mean, I think that inherently, doesn't matter how quickly poetry is delivered, we, we, we want to sit with each word, we want to sit with each line. So I think it's the opposite of the, the, the way that you know, society is as, as quickened. I like the idea of poetry being a way to, to slow things down. Mm. I enjoy the space that poems also open up. And I was, I was hoping we could explore some of the ways you use language in in several of the poems from whisper songs i saw you were working with or perhaps perhaps maybe even struggling against 
the ways official language, um, language of bureaucracy or officialdom, more often obscures mm-hmm. or fails to tell a story. It's almost it's designed to to hide. And this felt like it was particularly relevant in the relation relations to the ways language can be used to dehumanise black and brown bodies um, in the eyes of that bureaucracy, making them something other. Um, in the in the poem Trouble, 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 you, you write, he left her no story and the coroner gave little away, sort of referring to this momentous event that was reduced to, I think, three or four lines. I wanted to ask about how you use language and how do you see it being used against people? Well... Oh, there's a lot of poems. Sorry, a lot of poems in this collection, and I've certainly worked in this way before. For one of a better term, are sort of what I call archival poems, mm-hmm. and those poems will utilise and have utilised um, archival sources. In that case, a coroner's report. In the case of a poem, a long poem in this collection called "The Eight Truths of Khan," comes from a lifting a file from the Department of Immigration of my great grandfather's um, immigration file. Um, I've done this in the past, certainly looking at the colonial record, which is also in this poem. And my my motivation here is that my trained background, and when I say trained, as an academic is in history. So I have a PhD in history and taught history at Melbourne University for many years. And one of the things that struck me about doing archival research and the sort of Western notion of the archive, it's, it's where truth is found or certainly where objective bureaucratic fact is found is that when I read archival sources, it was just so patently obvious to me that they hid so much. There was so much in the archive that the archive doesn't say. It might insinuate, it might use sanitised language to, say, disguise violence and racism, but what the archive does, the archive um, genre as a genre, it is, it, it's able to to hide its own crimes in some way um, or to obliterate its own crimes. So my work in working with archival sources and archival bureaucratic language has been both to utilise the same language in the in the document so that in the case of the Eight Truths of Khan, there are aspects of or elements of that long poem that I've literally lifted um, phrases from the um, from the immigration file but what I do is is manipulate those phrases or m- manipulate or maybe decode that language and then reform it in another way. So it's a bit like taking a document and putting the spotlight onto it and, and forcing that document to, to, to speak about what it otherwise doesn't want to reveal. So then in this sense, I think one that language is um, very powerful in regard to issues of, say, discrimination against Aboriginal people, it's it's not only very powerful, but it's very violent. And what I've done in this archival work, which has been a long project for me, I previously published similar work, is to is to interrogate. It's really to interrogate the archival language and, and make it say something that it would rather keep secret. Yeah. I saw so much of that. You're you're working to expose the spaces where language where language has, has failed, has fallen through the cracks, has has hidden or deliberately lied. Um, I was really struck by many of the stories in in both the collections deal with violence, particularly violence in the home and violence perpetrated by men. Um, I was struck in the in the titular story of Darker's Last Night. Your character, Little Red, um, she uses the line, "She'll have her story on her body to tell you." 
women, mm. children, we carry our stories with us. Now, mm. I mean, it's a couple of years back now, but Jess Hill's stellar prize winning work, mm. See What You Made Me Do, it catapulted terms like coercive control into our, po- uh, our public discussion. But in your stories, you're giving a very personal language to this and showing us where language fails. Um, I, I wanted to know, like, I mean, statistics tell us this is happening. You know, if we look at statistics, it means someone we know has has probably fallen subject to this, but we we're not we don't talk about it or we don't talk about it enough. Can you talk about articulating violences and putting voices into those spaces that are so seldom voiced? Yeah, I mean, just to touch on the idea of you carrying your story on your body. Um, I mean, way back when I did my first book, Shadow Boxing, um, a story called The Butcher's Wife is based on a, a boy seeing, it begins with a boy seeing a woman on a street corner and she's heavily made up her face and he knows that under that face are bruises and he knows that those bruises would have been caused by a man because that's what his mum does. And then he notices a small cut, a circular cut on her eyebrow and he knows that's the you know, a wedding ring cut, which I've seen many women working class average women with those little scars on their eyebrow, which are the scars of a wedding ring. So yeah, the evidence is clearly carried on the body. And I have very strong memories, very strong memories of being a schoolboy, uh, yeah, about eight years of age, going to the Fitzroy pool for our swimming training at the start of the year. And you, know, you go into the change room, all the boys have to strip off and get in their togs, in their bavers, and you would see bruises all over boys' bodies. And you knew what they were. They were, yeah, the dad had strapped them or kicked them or punched them. But you would never say anything. You would just pretend you hadn't seen. So it's like the, the body or the bruise or the scar or the cut is revealing the secret that we all want to keep. So it's it really makes us complicit in that secret. I think it makes the secret even more powerful. So that's really important. But I suppose the second thing is it's, it's for me, yeah, my readership, is often, yeah, I don't know, percentage-wise be more of a middle-class readership. And people, when they ask about issues of writing stories about domestic violence, will often ask how difficult it was or how do you feel of revealing these secrets, et cetera. And I, I understand the context of that because we know that d- domestic violence is endemic in a society like Australia, but yet we know that even still there are so many secrets around this issue. The issue is so different for me because there was never any secret about domestic violence in my family, thankfully because my mother is someone who would never keep her mouth shut. She would always be quite vocal about this issue. So that within my family, we've never been um, uncomfortable about discussing violence in our family. We've, We've refused to be silenced about it. So then when I write about it, it's no surprise to me. It's And this might sound odd, I don't find it difficult or traumatic to write about violence. I just feel that in the case of, say, a story like Darker's Last Night, I want to tell a story about the courage of women. I want to tell a story about a young girl having to find courage to stand up to her father. And as one of the, um, you know, I have had very good reviews of this book, or very, very generous. James Lay, who who did a review of this book, talked about the incredible, you know, sort of fractured fairy tale aspect of this story of how it ends. And um, he used a term which I'd never thought of, but he, he talked about it, of this and a few other stories, as a wish fulfilment. And I like that. I actually like that. I think that of, of, of being a boy who grew up in the house and being amongst violent men for most of my childhood and teenage years, I do accept that some of my stories are parables that, you know, these men get it in the neck, so to speak. 
that mm. revenge is sweet, and I don't shy away from that. I like the fact that in my fictional stories, men get their come up, comeuppance, and I, as a parable or as a life story, I'm quite happy with that because I know that the women I grew up amongst, some of them did find that sweet revenge, and others wish they had. That was, I mean, that story was was devastating, and I the ending the ending was so it, it has this sense of it's not a not a story that you necessarily want to say words like wonderful about, but the ending has has this sort of wonderful that you wish this could be each story. But then I, I was struck, you know, you you the line in the story, our family secret was everyone's secret, and I I was mm-hmm. so just so interested about the articulating of this because we know like we. If if statistics are be to believed, and we've we've all in the last year and a half become, you know, miniature experts on on statistics, um, we know this is happening. We know it's closer than we want to believe, and 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 to break through that silence seemed so important. Um, look, Tony, I, I'm conscious of the time, and I would be absolutely remiss if I if I went past there are there are twin pieces, one in each collection that I. I loved um, so riding with train, riding trains with Thelma Plum, and waiting for a train with Thelma Plum. <laughs> like I, I loved your work. I loved the song "Better in Black," and I was also just fascinated by the different iterations of the idea in the poem and the story form. Can you can you speak specifically to that moment? I'm I can only assume there was a moment that inspired this, and how it how it became these two different works. Yeah, well, I mean, I actually, I love them as well. So that um, how they're inspired is is that, you know, I I love Thelma Plum mm. and that album and I'd been listening to it and Better in Black, not only was it going round and round in my head, that um, being a runner, I have, you know, runners would never be surprised by this. I have a 30-minute sort of um, Spotify, yeah. Spotify mix that goes, I don't know how many hundred of songs are on it, but... Better in Black is on it, of course, but... I think it's on mine song, too. <laughs> yeah, when this song was going around and around in my head, I was actually literally at times when I was sitting waiting to do this thing, playing that song on repeat. It was so strong. And I actually was um, in New South Wales and standing on a railway station during lockdown, although we'd had a brief respite, which allowed me to go to New South Wales from, from Victoria. And I had the song on, and I was, I was just looking around me, and this was during... Lockdown two, I think. Yeah, we're in lockdown twenty seven now. But the few people who were out and about on the station look really despondent, which isn't surprising. And we just all look like we we had enough, and um, we look we all look pretty pathetic. That's the best way to put it. And then there was this young Aboriginal woman on the station who was just the opposite. And I don't know if she was dancing to Thelma Plum, but I was in my head. And I just thought she's just so sassy and out there. And she's got everything about her, which was sort of in your face in a, in a nice way. That that's where the idea of the poem came from. But then when I got on the train and I was on a long train trip into Central in Sydney, there was an altercation between a guy who was pretty angry, um, pretty angry and mean, and again a young woman. Um, she wasn't, by the way, an Aboriginal woman. This is where the story fiction comes in she was a woman of color and his offense to her was really really awful and what i loved about that is it was one of those moments on the train where it was clear that myself and a couple of people were about to intervene I, you know we sort of thought oh, okay i better say something here and she just she just gave it to him where she didn't yeah she didn't need us to back her up mm-hmm. so 
in a way, the poem came out of a direct observation and then the fictional story, I wanted to play with both of those notions. Um, but also that I did want to, when, yeah, the fact of putting Thelma Plum's name in the, in the title of both, it was quite deliberate because I find her to be one of those great younger Aboriginal artists who's clearly had commercial success, but she's also got yeah, great strength, great integrity, and I, I see her as such a really strong young Aboriginal woman. So I wanted to pay homage to her. And I have to tell you, one of the best things I've, I heard was that the short story version of that was published initially in the Saturday paper, and Thelma's manager happened to see it, and he sent it to her. And then he, they got in touch with me and saying she cried when she saw the story. She was so happy about it. So then, of course, when the mm. books came out, I sent her a copy of both the story collection and, and the poetry collection. So, so I'm like, a, I'm like a, a, an ageing fanboy, I that, suppose. That is awesome. I, I struggle to find how anyone couldn't be a fanboy of Thelma's. Um, look, do, this story is also the other thing that really struck me about this story is you you have written a, a COVID like an ISO story. I've I've yeah. been intrigued by the way people are going to and are engaging with our current situation. But it also, particularly the short story writing trains with Thelma Plub, it sh- it highlights the way there is this clear distinction between those who can escape exposure from COVID, yeah. those who can stay at home, isolate, work from home, and those who can't. But then also how within that broader group, the people who, who are, you know, forced into these risk situations because they have to go to work, there can be so much animosity. It's, you know, they, they, these are people who perhaps maybe should have more common cause but are, are kept apart through through racism, through, you know, economic competition, through, you know, in, in so many ways it feels like the haves are able to pit the haves, have-nots against each other. Um I've said a lot there. I don't really have a clear question. It was just something that really, really struck me about that story. Well, there is something that I'd say in response to that because there is another ISO story in the book which addresses your point, I think, more directly, and that is Blood Bank, a love story. I loved it, yeah. um, Just a couple of elements of that that matter, I think, is that um, when we were in lockdown in Melbourne with that first curfew and we couldn't go anywhere, one of the exemptions was if you would give blood. And I just thought, well, I'm going to give blood, not because I really felt that I needed to give blood, but I just wanted to escape the house. So I was able to go all the way in the city, and if anyone pulled me up, the, the police just say, yeah, I'm going to the blood bank, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get a little certificate when you go. And it, it did strike me exactly what you're saying, because the, the only people in the, the mall in the centre of Burke Street in Melbourne were homeless people. Mm-hmm. And they were still sitting there with their little signs and all, you know, asking for assistance. But there was no one there to speak to. And it was this really weird thing of I'm in a ghost town, but it's not a ghost town because all those people who have nowhere else to go and have no shelter are still here. And that was a, so telling in relationship to um, the haves and have-nots. By the way, just to bring this forward, we know that in Melbourne the last couple of days there's a real concern now about um, the virus moving through the homeless population for the first time in ways that hasn't been in the past. So that really struck me. And I, it is a humorous sort of surreal story in, in some ways, but the difference is between this guy who meets a homeless guy who's sort of like a, 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 you know, a cynically tired of the whole thing and a woman who's giving blood who thinks she's a hero to the nation, you know. So mm-hmm. it, 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 I did want to – I had thought, by the way, both those stories have really strong elements, I suppose, humor in them. 
when I thought about COVID and writing about it, it seems considering how I approach a lot of my work, I didn't think the sort of very serious, profound story was something that I wanted to engage with because there's something quite ridiculous and surreal about the situation we're in and I wanted to approach it in that way. What it has done for me, though, and I think you're really right here, is that my work has always been concerned with people who live on the margins of society or yeah, people who are powerless, and I do see that as a natural interest in my, in both in all of my writing but certainly in my fiction and I just think it's been exacerbated during the time that we're in so that while there's a lot of talk about you know how well we've done or how well we've you know we've worked together during COVID and people you know at a grassroots level I've seen people act in remarkably generous ways towards each other at the end of the day this is also about economics it's also about money and the people who have less now have far less and there are people I've noticed in Melbourne on the streets who are literally living hand to mouth now in, a, in really extreme situations. And I know the charities and the food banks are scrambling to help people. And again, they're, yeah, they're doing the best they can. But we're in a situation where that isolation has really been exacerbated. So when you go out, you just see people in really dire circumstances. And we're, we're simply not doing what we should be doing to assist them. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for making that point, Tony. Um, look, I'm keeping an eye on the time. I know you were mentioning 10 to, so shall I just make um, some comments to wrap up so that I give you plenty of time for your next next Zoom appointment? Yeah, sure. Fantastic. Um, I'm speaking with Tony Birch. As, as Tony reminded us at the beginning, it is Poetry Month, so this is the perfect time to get your hands on his new collection, Whisper Songs. And while you are at it, there is also Dark As Last Night, both both collections, they've filled me up so much. I've, I've taken so much away from them, Tony, and there is still so much to discover. I appreciate the time you have taken today. Thank you. Um, thank you for these collections. And, and, yeah, thank you for coming on the show. Well, can I say thank you as well to, to yourself, that really um, engaging discussion of the book. I really, I really love that. But I do want to thank you, listeners, and, and quite seriously to say this, that I know it's a – a really difficult time for people all over the all over Australia at the moment, and I hope that people say stay safe. Um, it is such a difficult time. I know that with young people, um, it's very difficult with whether it be school, university, or, or getting out and going wild. It's so hard not to do those things, and I, I really think we, we just need to stick with each other and get through this and and see each other in a better situation. Hopefully by the end of the year. But I hope everyone stays safe, and thank you for having me. That's it for this great conversation with Tony Birch. Tony has two new incredible books out. One is a poetry collection. It's called Whisper Songs. The other, a short story collection, Dark as Last Night. They're both out now from University of Queensland Press. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Ganangara people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. Love to hear from you. You can catch us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. And look, can I ask, if you are subscribed to the podcast... Would you like to give us a rating? It really helps people find us, really helps people see and know a little bit about what we do. Love it if you can share with your friends or just subscribe. It means there's a new podcast coming to you, episode coming to you every week. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye for now.